They're bright and shiny. Yeah, it looks a little bit too bright and shiny. It's okay. We're not recording the video. Well, technically we are, but we don't use it. I did find a place that would do the editing for a dollar a minute, so it's worth it. Because <laughs> it takes me five days to do it. <laughs> What's that look like? That's fine. It looks great. All right. I had some folks tell me they really liked your episodes. Oh, good. Well, I w wouldn't spurge today. I bought a new saw. Good for you. <laughs> it's hell using an old one. I need, a, need one. This is Disaster Tales. Fairweather. My co-host today is John Harrell. Okay. What are we doing here today? You want to talk about Santa Rosa? I want to talk about 1906. 1906. On April 18th in 1906, in the city of San Francisco in the surrounding area, a large earthquake hit at 5.15 in the morning. Some of the reports said that it was as long as two minutes. They also said there was a minor shock before the major shock. This shock brought down buildings, new buildings, old buildings, brick buildings, steel buildings, wood buildings. Most of them fell down, unless they were on some hard ground on the high hills. And after that, everything was okay, except for the fire started. And it's a long and involved story, but that's what we're going to talk about. About the fire. Earthquake and fire, yes. Yeah, there was, that was... I think, as I recall, a lot of the reason why the buildings fell down, both in San Francisco, was because it was on reclaimed land. It was land that was initially swamp or marshland or saltwater marsh. And they, during the gold rush, they would park the boats there. The boats would be abandoned. They would deteriorate. They'd add some more dirt on top, and they'd build on top of that. Yeah, those that backfield area is... When you have that, you get liquefaction, which is when the earth is shaking so much that the loose ground acts like fluid, and the buildings sink into it and, and fall apart. And when you have reclaimed land like that, not only do, is, it, is it difficult to keep safe from earthquakes, but you also tend to sell it at the lowest price because it's the least desirable land for building. So the people that were going to be in that area, if it was not business structures, then they were in pretty low-income housing. And I think that's still true today. Definitely. Yes, it is. Well, in San Francisco in 1906, it was a big port. It's the Golden Gate to the Pacific. And they had three morning papers, three morning newspapers that operated, and they were all within 100 feet of each other. And they had gold miners that had been there that had made a lot of money, and they, they'd been building up on Knob Hill and the Victorian houses and and it was a it was a bustling, hopping place. People there was a lot of people that were staying there in hotels, and visiting relatives. And as I went through this book, I noticed that there was a lot of people who were named in here that were pretty famous. Actually, Adolphus Bush was one of the people that survived this, and I believe Enrico Caruso because the Met was there, the Metropolitan Opera from New York was there. They just set up. Ah, uh, they lost all their costumes and all their scenery. And hopefully none of their personnel, I didn't get that out of this book. Most of the things came out of this, this earthquake horror book. And you have a copy of that book that was published back in 1906, is that right? 
1906, the, the, what happened was the publisher sent out reporters to the place as soon as they heard there was an earthquake. One of them was actually on the first train from Los Angeles into the city of San Francisco. And that's where he saw uh, Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson, who was on that train. So Robert Louis Stevenson, the writer, was married, and his, his wife, wife. Was, had heard about the earthquake, and she was heading up to see him? Probably to look for someone. But these reporters went out, and they came into San Francisco, and they started asking the people that they saw what happened. The, they'd go to the police department, they, they'd go to the firefighters, they'd go to the survivors, mostly the survivors. Some of the stories were absolutely heartrending and horrific. And that's what this is. It's actually more a collection of anecdotes than a historical document. Uh, but I think, I think it's a lot more interesting. And so we'll be talking about, about that stuff. So it sounds like this is a collection of, of eyewitness accounts. Exactly. And they were t and taken immediately after, as quickly as they could get so there. That was, it's really alive and fresh. Mm -hmm. And that's something else that I'm noticing about this. When you brought this up, and we talked about it a while ago, was that in 1906, we'd already had the Pony Express, but that still was a, that was a significant event, being able to cross the United States in days on horseback for weeks. Mm -hmm. And now we've got the telegraph going and beginnings of the telephone, so we can get information back and forth, in a sense, almost instantaneously, that's pretty phenomenal. It is, and especially for the time. They just, they just managed to get the railroad across the country, well, I don't remember when, but probably a few, yeah. a few decades back. And, and yeah, they had, run, they had run all the telegraph lines along the railroads, and they had a telephone system. But in an earthquake, as, as you know, since you're a Californian, the first things to go down are usually the power lines and the communication, and that's exactly what happened. This earthquake hit, and the telegraph office, they couldn't send anything out. The telephones weren't working. Of course, there was no internet, <laughs> <laughs> no, no interweb. But um, so there was an earthquake. And it was bad, and buildings fell down, and people were crushed. When The ones that went outside, uh, some of them got crushed by buildings or cornices or roofs or chimneys falling. The people that stayed in, especially the hotels, they did pretty well. As a matter of fact, some of them actually went out and then went back in and got their stuff and brought it out again. But at that time, they were using gas lighting, and so there were gas lines running through the city. I don't know if that's, we've been trying to find out, but I can't, whether it was methane gas or if it was coal. We think it was probably coal-related gas that they had. But those lines broke. And so when the fire started, which it always does, the gas lines lit everything on fire. When the firefighters went to hook up to the water lines, they were broken too. So there, was n there wasn't a lot that they could do, except they tried to get water in their trucks and use it and they also started dynamiting buildings so there wouldn't be the big open structure where a fire could go in and really flame up to the top. That's what the firefighters had on their hands. They had gas lines burning, they had no water, and they had dynamite. <laughs> that is a, quite, a, quite an image of first response that I'm coming up with. People running, not having water, having dynamite, and running around the city that is sprouting fires uh, from gas leaks all over, 
over rubble that's in the streets. That's phenomenal. That's I, I shake my head. And even today, you're talking about communication. I, I don't know why I'm sticking on that. But even today, there, it's important. I recall when you and I were talking about some of the operations we've been on were the hurricanes uh, in Florida or even as recently as Katrina, the telecommunications, the cell phones, that system goes down. Oh, uh, definitely. And then uh, and the regular phone lines go down, too, a lot of times, especially in storms. And I remember up in when we were talking about the Lake County fires here in California this summer, that there was a real big bump because the mobile media, the cell phone media, would had relegated the emergency services to the low end of the processing uh, of cell phone calls. Mm-hmm. And that hindered the communication system of the emergency service workers. That's right. The warnings, the warnings didn't go out. And even when they, they did go out, a lot of people didn't get them because they... Either their phone was turned off or it was the South Tower burned or whatever. They they just never got the warning. I think in the Butte County fire, I I asked almost everybody that I talked to how they found out about the fire. Only two of them said they got a message on their cell phone. Wow. One of and one of them was in Los Angeles. So it went to them in Los Angeles, but it didn't go out to the people that were local because of the uh, outages. That's a system when you have one small failure in that system, the entire thing collapses. So it's like you need to have a backup on that stuff. But there was no warning for this earthquake. Earthquakes kind of come as a surprise most of the they time. They do. And we still talk about advanced planning for, for earthquakes. But tell me more about the, the water supply and the gas lines and, and what happened next that the reporters were focusing on. So we lost our water supply. We have fires starting out in the Market District on Market Street, and then starts to spread out all over all over the city. It goes north and it goes east towards the bay. It went up as far as um, I think Washington Street, Montgomery, Market. I think the first day most of it was in that area. Um, the firefighters not having any water started pumping out sewer sewage water. And we're using that to try and put out the fire. And so that, that went for a while. And then they had some tugs come up, some uh, fire tugs come up along the docks, and they were trying to spray water as much as they possibly could. And, in, and the rest of it was basically they had to, they had to dynamite things that were going to burn, get them as close to the ground as possible so that when they burned, they didn't spread as far. So the people are running away from this horrible earthquake that scared them. They don't have any experience with anything like that. There's no planning. They have trouble getting through the city because there's debris in the streets. People are, uh, of course, panicking because the fire seems to be coming up and everywhere and then spreading everywhere. They don't know where to go. And then you have rescuers, firefighters, and some soldiers that were starting to try and pull people out of the debris before the fire got to them. And that's what scared, of course, a lot of people was that as well, is that if they were caught in the debris, were they going to be able to get out before the fire got there? Oh, I can't imagine that. One of the stories, and it's from two different sources in this book, and it's really sad. There was a man who was stuck in the rubble, and the fire was really close. And there was a soldier there, and he asked the soldier, please shoot me. 
And the soldier kind of, you know, looked at him and then he shot and somehow he missed him. And so the man says to the person who's doing the reporting, will you please slit my wrists? And after a few minutes of, you know, I don't want to do that. No, please. He ended up and slit his wrist so he would be dead before the fire got to him. Oh. <laughs> I can't imagine what that would be like to be in that state of mind. Mm -hmm. That is just... Well, you have a choice. It's like in some of the other fires we've talked about. If you're going to burn or you're going to jump or you're going to burn or you're going to be crushed or shot or whatever, you, a lot of people don't want to be burned. That's a horrible way to die, and it takes a while. I remember talking about that when we were dealing with 9-11. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very sad. I was there, and to see... And hear people talk about see to see people actually make the decision to jump instead of uh, waiting in the towers for the tower to collapse. Yeah, yeah, and that's and, and like I said, we Barb, my sister Barb and I, who we do some of these, we talked about two fires last week in in New York, and people had to choose between burning or jumping, and they jumped. Mm. So you're in the city. There's chaos everywhere. People are running willy nilly trying to find each other, find their relatives and friends, and trying to find a safe place. You can't drive anything through hardly, although there are some cars going around. The fire, fire trucks are having trouble getting to where they're supposed to go. There's still dangerous buildings that are not quite all the way down. You can't use the streetcars because they're all warped and broken. You can't try and contact anybody because the telegraph and the telephone are out of service. So with, with fires breaking out in dozens of places around the city, um, <coughs> people really were in a state of shock and, and just trying to survive. They were in survival mode. So was there any um, bringing about of emergency service responders? When I use that term today, you know, I think of you and in, in our experience of being an EMT of, of firefighters or not firefighters, but first responders. Mm -hmm. um, what was what was in existence then? I, I don't recall them being any EMTs, so to speak, at that time. No, what was, um, it doesn't say in this book, but generally there was um, there were doctors and when they started set, and there were hospitals there, it was just a matter of getting to them. And so, and there were nurses, but, it, but as far as the emergency response, firefighters back then and emergency responders, firefighters are focused on the fire and saving people from the fire. Uh, the first responders were pretty much throw and go. And that was like that up until about the 1970s or 80s. You go and pick somebody up, you throw them in the ambulance, get them to the hospital as soon as you can so somebody else can take care of them because nobody had the training back then. <laughs> so We've come a long way. Well, we have and we haven't, because we still yeah. have those communication system failures. But at least there's planning. They're telling, and we talked about this before, they're telling people now, instead of be prepared for 72 hours on your own, they're telling them to be prepared for a week on their own. And... Like I said, if you can imagine the big towers in San Francisco now going down and trying to get rescuers through to the debris, trying to find people who are still alive, it's 
it's time consuming and it's difficult and you're always in a rush to do it so you don't lose anybody that you don't have to. One of their sources of fluid was there's, I think it was called Italian Hill and there was some wineries up there and the firefighters and the soldiers broke into the winery and they took 500 barrels of wine and used it to fight the fire. <laughs> you use what you got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fortunately, prohibition hadn't come into place by then. <laughs> no, uh, or they would have been out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have had the 500 barrels of wine. <laughs> that's right. Well, they wouldn't have had it legally. Um, yeah, so there was true. three AM papers that were destroyed, and they were right there around, I think, 4th and Market. One of the call, that was one of them. There's still a call building there, the Chronicle and the Examiner. The seven-story Palace Hotel was was heavily damaged, and people were stuck in that. There was a 14-story building along the waterfront, the new Merchant Exchange Building, and it was the headquarters of Southern Pacific. It was a steel structure. It was still heavily damaged. It was right on the waterfront, too, but it was... Uh, that's on that, that mushy plain that you were talking about, mm -hmm. of that unstable earth. Okay. So even a steel-reinforced structure would have trouble with that. Now, part of this that I was looking at talked about Chinatown. And at that time, the Chinese were second-class citizens. That's just the beginning of the century. We were still under that system where there was a lot of discrimination. People in Chinatown were kind of mysterious to everybody else that worked there. They had their own, they had their own law code. They had their own shops. They, they spoke their own language. They had their own society. And one, when Chinatown was totally destroyed, when people went into Chinatown to go through the debris, they found that there was tunnels everywhere under there. They had opium dens under there. They had just being able to get from one place to another. They had contraband stored. They had prostitutes that worked down there. And from what I read, it also did some damage down in, down in the tunnels as well. But I don't have hard facts on that. Well, that certainly makes sense. They don't know how many people were killed there because they don't know how many were there. Ooh. That's devastating to that community. Mm -hmm. well, what about the other areas of, of town? Um, and that's where the new fires would erupt there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a music hall on O'Farrell. What happened there? They just burned. One of the things that, this, that these writers did was list well-known landmarks at the time. And then they talked about whether they were destroyed or not. And they were pretty much all destroyed. Firefighters could not contain the fire. They did their best with the dynamiting they... They limited the amount of fuel that was available, but it just went on. Millionaires' homes on Knob Hill were destroyed. And that's something that I guess they took special notice of because rich people don't usually have to live out in the streets or in the park. <laughs> <laughs> or in the Walmart parking lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it stretched into the second day. And I'm not, I haven't been to San Francisco. I've looked it up on the map pretty well, but I really haven't been there, so I can't tell you much about these places. On the second day, the fire reached Portmouth Square, and nurses and soldiers set up a temporary morgue for 50 bodies. Uh, dynamiters blew up a building when they were coming back to the hospital and injured some of the soldiers, so they had to take them to the Presidio Hospital with the other injured. 
the ones that the soldiers that had been helping with the morgue. They set up the mechanics building, and I'm not sure where that was, um, but it was a large building where they used to have dances and events. They went ahead and set that up as a hospital because of the size. There were 300 people that were treated there. Their doctors and nurses by the score, and this is a quote, hurried to the scene and volunteered their much-needed aid. Drug stores were broken into for medical supplies. The department stores were ransacked for pillows and mattresses and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that was the soldiers that went out and did that. We still see that today by people in, in disaster because there's so, there's so much the need for support and necessities are there and they don't get in time. And so they just resort their their own to get what they need. Yeah, that's right. This, and, and this was like, this was an organized kind of, I, you could call it looting tech, technically, but it was, it was actually the government saying, we are going to take these resources into our, into the government and then redistribute them where they're needed the most. And it stopped a lot of price gouging, but there's, to me, I mean, looting is stealing. And looting from people who've lost everything is puts you pretty much at the bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. there, the, the lowest levels of hell. But there's people who loot for supplies, like diapers and water and food and things like that. And there's people who loot for things like televisions or cars, like <laughs> in... Uh, in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, the fi- the police department raided, I think it was a Cadillac dealership, and took the cars. So there's 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 looting, but then there's like survival resourcing, and even though they are technically the same, there is a difference. If you go in and loot for medication that you need, that's one thing. But if you go in and loot for drugs to sell on the street, that's that's something else. But it's hard to tell in a disaster like that when everything is crazy and insane and people are running around who actually owns the stuff, who's looting and who's not. They did finally stop it, I believe, by shooting the looters. Ooh. Well, the fire went to this mechanics building and, and burned it, so they had to evacuate all their patients out. They took any form of transport they could find to move their, the injured people to Golden Gate Park. So they were taking wagons and cars and horses and carts and whatever they could find to drag people out of that area so they could get away from the fire. And one of the, at 7th and Mission, there was a hotel called the Brunswick. And when that went down, when that went down and then burned up, they lost 150 people just at that one place. And that's just the second day. So what does the third day have in store for us (laughs) in this disaster? Oh, it was, it was not good. By this time, the mayor, his name was Eugene E. Schmitz, he still was coordinating the response as best that he could, and he did a good job. Uh, the military was under the direct direction of General Frederick Funston, who uh, was born in Ohio and raised in Kansas. He went to high school and college in Kansas. And later on, Fort Riley, Kansas, is actually in Camp Funston. I think that's how that works. Camp Funston, Fort Riley. Uh, it was named after him. And that's where the influenza epidemic started in 1918, just as a side note, <coughs> that it was named after the gentleman who uh, did the work here. And he had his soldiers out and, and working and organized. He had supplies out and organized. He had, the, when the government came in with supplies to distribute, he was in charge of all that, and he was very good at his job. 
They sent military tents up to the Presidio for survivors. Troops were turned out of the barracks to sleep on the ground so they could have the tents for people who were sick. And, and I quote, the more delicate of women and nursing mothers. So they tried to make room for people who needed the shelter. And, and if it meant that the soldiers who had to sleep on the ground, well, you're a soldier and you do what they tell you. On the second day, I believe it was, General Funston ordered a mass burial uh, at the Presidio, I think, because, or near the Presidio, because they had, because the morgue with the 50 bodies in it and more people were showing up and you just can't leave people out like that. So that's what they had to do. The soldiers, if you can imagine, they're driving through the park in their wagons, doling out water to people. The National Guard starts to come in from points to the east, places that were undamaged or not heavily damaged. Now, during all this chaos, a lot of these people hadn't slept for two days. Uh, they started having aftershocks, and that was very frightening. And they said that you could see people roaming the streets because they hadn't had anything to eat or drink for two days. And they were just looking for anything that they could eat or, or drink or clothing to cover them or whatever. They were all over. There was just so much need. And so many people. And if, with the, um, if they're using black water to put out fires, mm -hmm. then that's going to contaminate all the other groundwater that's around. So I'm wondering if dysentery came into this at all. Well, Funston was very strict about the uh, sanitation at the camps. Oh, good. And there was Golden Gate Park and there was the Presidio. And, and he made sure that as, as much as he could, and he had his commanders take over the duties, that, that what was set up was set up in the most sanitary way that they could. Wow. So we're into the, into the what? That was the third day. Late, in, late that afternoon, a big gale blew in, and the, and the winds blew up the flames again. And by 7 o'clock in the evening, it was sweeping over the waterfront. They'd managed to keep the waterfront wet and safe mostly, but when this wind came in, it was just too much for them. They swore 1,000 special policemen armed with rifles that were furnished by the government to go out and keep the peace. And I'm not sure where they got these people, probably just people who were standing around with nothing else to do. Say, so here's a, here's a badge, here's a gun, go make sure nobody gets hurt. <laughs> Oops. Or nobody does something. We talked a, bit, a little bit about price gouging, and that's when there's a disaster and there's a limited supply and people hike the price up and take advantage of the survivors who don't have anything and are, and are starving for things like bread. Bread was going for a dollar. Now, a loaf of bread in the 19, what, probably in the 19, 30s was going for a nickel or a dime and they were charging a dollar. One person bought a can of sardines for $3.50. Now that could be a day's wages. Easy. And then somebody charged a family $2,000 for an automobile, a used automobile, when you could buy a, a new Ford Model N for $500. So this kind of price gouging was, it's pitiful. And it was going on everywhere. You know, if they had food, they were charging to the highest bidder, basically. The mayor, as a result, confiscated all the grocery stores in the unaffected areas for distribution. They just took all the food away so that people couldn't steal it and distribute it for free so that it would stop the price gouging. 
people were walking into the Presidio at the, by this time, which is the third day, and they just threw themselves down on the wet grass and fell asleep. They're bent. Yeah, they, they were exhausted. They'd been walking around looking for food, looking for relatives, and they just crashed. Literally, they crashed. Now, some people got onto the ferries and went over to Oakland. Yeah, East Bay. And there's an island out there, too, that they talked about. But, but they went to Oakland, and Oakland Chamber of Commerce set up a relief center. And they started putting people to work, listing the casualties. One woman who was there, she had lost her husband and her son. And so she said, please give me some work so I can just calm my mind down. She, her eldest son and her husband had been killed, and she had fled with her baby. But during the rush of people, she lost her baby and couldn't find it. So she's going through these records, and she finds a description of a baby that sounds like her baby. So she starts crying and begging for them to get the baby to her. So they give her the baby, who has passed away, and they find her later carrying it in a pillow slip that's thrown over her shoulder. This man sees her, and then two hours later, he sees her again, and the pillow slip had ripped, and the baby had fallen out. The mother didn't know it. She was in so much shock, she just didn't even realize that the body had slipped out of the bag. He told the mother the bag had been ripped and the baby wasn't in there, and she fainted. So he went to find the baby two blocks away, but when he came back, he couldn't find the mother anywhere. So I don't know what he did with the remains, but... She wasn't there to take them, and he doesn't know what happened to her at all. And that, and that's just, to me, that's incredibly sad. That is sad. just so traumatic. The, the, we, we see that today from today's eyes. I'm hearing you tell the story, and the stress, the trauma, the upset that this woman had experienced, I, I just, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable. And how people are able to bring themselves to just even continue to move forward in some way. And the shock that she must have been in, the emotional and psychological shock that she must have been carrying with her about her family, her her husband, her child, and her baby. I, it boggles my mind to, I can't embrace that much trauma, that much loss, that much grief. Nowadays, the Red Cross and ham radio operators and other people, now that we have an internet, they actually put it on Facebook. If you're in a disaster and you can't find somebody, there's several places that you can go look at lists and find out if that person is safe or not. I know that when we were up there at the Butte Fire, at the time we made the recording, there was over a thousand people that were still missing that they hadn't found. By the time that they had finished looking, there was only like five or six that they hadn't found. It's important that those lists are there. It's important that people know it. And it's important that if you're in a disaster, you need to go and tell somebody you're still alive so that they can get the information to your relatives. The other piece in that that I'd like to add, Kate, is is to also, as at someone outside of the event area, to understand that it just takes time to compile those lists, to check the list for any duplications, and to, to massage that information of incoming and outgoing information. And so it's not instantaneous. It's going to take some days for that information to, to reconcile itself. And as you said, I, the list may have had thousands of people on the list that were missing or unaccounted for. And when it gets down to the end and it's massaged down, it came out to a handful or so, as I recall. Uh, yeah, that's right. It just right. takes time. And it does. And you can imagine if you're 
only working with telegraph and local telephone that it's going to take even longer. So this fire went on into the fourth day. And at the end of the, end of the time when they finally got it out, it had burned 20 square miles of the city of San Francisco. Firefighters were called to work on flare-ups, put those down. The fire tugs were out there just pouring gallons of water onto the flames along the, the bay. And Fort Mason was saved by firefighters and soldiers who just worked themselves almost to death trying to keep that from being burned because it had supplies in it. What were some of the other people? Um, you were talking about the fires. Do you know of any particular people that survived the 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 fire that were noted. You mentioned a little bit about some famous people. Did you remember any others that were around? Adolphus Bush, the brewer from Bush Beer, he was there and he survived. And Enrico Caruso was there with the Met. I believe it was him. And he, he also survived that. And as I went through the book, I noticed there were more names, but when I went back the second time to go through, I had trouble finding them. But there were a lot of recognizable famous names of people who were there in the fire at the time. Probably some of the big four of the Huntington, Crocker, and such, uh, who created the railroad from east-west, transcontinental railroad. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm because I know that there was some people who had struck it rich on the gold mines. There was all those people on Knob Hill. They, they had famous people. The Red Cross was working there. They were working in Oakland, and one of the things that they noticed was that for some reason in Oakland, there was this spike in marriages. They said that young people would come to the Chamber of Commerce building and they talk like compare notes, it says, and then they decide to get married and they just got married there at City Hall. And there was anywhere from three to 10 people a day doing that. That's kind of an odd psychological reaction, I think, and I don't know how to explain that, but... They also had to worry about the tanks of the San Francisco Gas Company, which, which supplied the gas for the lighting. Somebody had the foresight to go and pump out those tanks that they kept their gas in so that it wouldn't explode when the fire reached it. And the fire did reach it, but they managed to stop it there, I think. I wonder if that was the precursor of Pacific Gas and Electric. It may have been. I'm sure that there was a merger at some point. PG&E, which is <laughs> declared bankruptcy now because they can't afford to reimburse people for the damages that were caused by what they say is their negligence. <laughs> Pacific Heights wasn't damaged very much by the earthquake. So these places that they find, the Red Cross starts putting people into other people's houses for shelter. Uh, it says in here that the people that were generous and asked their friends and neighbors to come in and stay in their houses got to choose who they were staying with. But the ones who were, it says, selfish, and it uses that word, and didn't want anybody to come in their houses, were then told by the Red Cross, these people are going to stay with you, put them in your parlor, put them in your bedroom. And they didn't get to pick who it was. So that, that was a little bit of sarcasm from the author that... <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, if you were generous, you could pick your friends, but if you weren't, then you were you could be burdened with anybody. This went on for four days and, and longer, and they finally got, got it out. It was a big group effort. They had the recovery camps. They were trying to house people in the buildings that were still standing. General Funston's commander 
had told him, take all the resources that you need and do what you have to do to take care of those people. 30,000 refugees were fed by the army response. And they gave 10,000 tents out for distribution as long as they lasted. And people took them all because they didn't have any place to go. So 10,000 tents were given out by the army. There was also federal aid from President Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt. And of course, the army soldiers did a lot of the work there, did a lot of the rescue work, did a lot of the firefighting, dynamiting, and hauling people around, organizing. They did a lot of good work there. Now, when the information got out, they started getting donations. Sure, why not? Well, no, I've got the information here. I'm sorry. The first people that donated was uh, the Merchants Association of Chicago, who had been through the Chicago fire in 1871, said, we're going to put us down for a million dollars. We're going to send you a million dollars right off the bat. And the Chicago fire took place from the 8th to the 10th of October in 1871. And a million dollars at that time comes out to about $28 million today. So that was a chunk of change for them to send. In addition, there was the states. The state of Texas sent $100,000. Omaha, the city of Omaha, spent, sent $10,000. Toronto, Canada sent $25,000. So people from all over, the Carnegie Hero Fund, the New York Stock Exchange, they sent a quarter of a million dollars. And then individuals here, it says Russell Sage, London Americans, Clarence McKay, W.W. Astor, President Roosevelt, Senator Knox, and then here it says a friend of humanity in New York sent $25,000. When you send money in, that's great, and you can use it to address the needs of the people directly, but when that money first comes in, you have to have something to spend it on. So they also had to be sending in supplies. So there was a lot of in-kind donations as well, food and other materials. They started bringing in lumber so that they could start rebuilding. A lot of that lumber that built San Francisco was harvested from the redwood forest just north of the city, which would be Marin County, Sonoma County, and Mendocino counties. Those old forests were were harvested to build the initial part of um, San, the initial San Francisco, then also to rebuild it. There's also a whole lot of quarries around the North Bay area that where they would pick up the cobblestone and haul that down into San Francisco. So yeah, a lot of those resources came back. They came back up here, reharvested, revisited those, and moved them on down into San Francisco to rebuild. I'm sure they had a lot of shipments coming from the Northwest as well, from Oregon and Washington State because that's, that was a pretty big lumber trade up there at the time. Yeah, huge, huge. Oregon, uh, Georgia Pacific was up in there, and that was coming to being. Yeah, big stuff, big stuff. So you are from the city of Sacramento. Yes. And even though this is the San Francisco earthquake, I say in quotation marks, it's actually the entire area was hit, and Santa Rosa was hit very hard. It was. Proportionally... Santa Rosa had more damage than San Francisco. Just about the entire downtown area of, of Santa Rosa was leveled. There were just a handful of buildings that were up. Um, as I recall, Luther Burbank, who was the um, botanist here that lived here and had made such a contribution to plants in this country and in the world, his greenhouse just suffered a couple of loose panes, and that was it which was quite unusual. 
So the whole area up here in Santa Rosa was just flattened. So did people stay in his greenhouse for shelter? Do you know? No, not. I can't find anything that, that supported that. But his, his experiments were intact in many cases. In Sebastopol, where I am now currently, mm-hmm. that's where he had his farm. That wasn't really uh, destroyed or, or not a lot of damage happened there. What we did see is that everything that you're seeing down in San Francisco mm-hmm. was mirrored up here in that the buildings were, were leveled, the people were thrown out of their buildings or evacuated their buildings, fires started to come up because we really didn't have the codes that we have today to prevent that spread of fire. Just by happenstance in San Francisco, Vaness Street was such a wide street to begin with, and that was a natural fire break uh, in a city that separated the fire, and it just came to a stall there because there's nothing to burn. I know on the third day they fought at Van Ness for a long time trying to keep it from crossing Van Ness. Yeah, so Santa Rosa didn't have that. So a lot of the fires continued and moved over uh, and throughout the town. Mm-hmm. And so you've you've got that. The Santa Rosa was the big town up north at that time. So you have a, a widespread disaster throughout the whole region in some of the East Bay. What's interesting is how we prepare today for that next big earthquake that'll hit the Bay Area and surrounding areas and how we choose to respond. There have been a number of programs already aired both on radio and on television and documentaries on what the preparedness is. Well, that's good because when you're prepared and you have your equipment available and you know what you're supposed to do instead of standing there saying, what can I do? What do I need to do? It helps, really helps to get the response coordinated and save more people's lives. Yeah, and you saw you saw that directly when you're dealing with the Santa Rosa fire a couple of years ago and the Lake County and Butte County fires this year. Mm-hmm. That's, I do. I see it. And there was a lot of people that didn't really know what to do because there's there wasn't a public education system for disaster response. A lot of places like... Where I live here in, T- in Tornado Alley, the weathermen will come on about February and March and start talking about tornado season. And this is what the siren is. And this is what to do when you hear it. And, you know, keep your radios on if you're out driving. And they talk about what kind of shelters, where in your house, be in the smallest room in the center of the house and things like that. They, they actually train the public and remind them what it is that they need to do if there's a, a tornado warning or other kind of storm warning. We also have wildfires here. They have killed people in the in the last few years. They killed a lot of cows because this is outside of the, the city. This is all ranch country. So there's just grass that goes on for miles and miles. But we do have a really good emergency management program here, and they do educate the public. That's good to hear. I'm, I, I like hearing that. I just cringe at, at some of them. You are talking recently, in, earlier in the show, you talked about, we used to talk about have, being prepared to last for one or two days. Mm-hmm. And then when we looked at Katrina and experienced Katrina, it was, it was not one or two days. It was more like five to ten days that people were out of sorts and without any backup or any supplies. And, and how important it is in this community that we live in in California, in 
San Francisco and the greater San Francisco area to realize that the next earthquake, that's going to take out. And yeah, there's may not be any help for a week, yeah, five to 10 days. And that you'd pretty much need to be on your own with your water and your food for that period of time because mm-hmm. grocery stores carry one to two days, maybe three days max in food mm-hmm. uh, resources. If the big earthquake happens here in this area, the, all the bridges, overpasses, and underpasses are going to have to be checked for fractures or for any damage from the earthquake. And so then you're not going to be able to move trucks in and out on the freeways. So that leaves the surface roadways, mm-hmm. if that's available. And during the Northridge earthquake, those highways collapsed on each other, and there were splits in the regular roads as well. Yes. So what they're looking at doing in here is to stage in, possibly stage in, but Sacramento and Stockton, stage and have supplies brought to those communities, then unload those those materials and, and goods onto barges and boats and ship them down via the waterway to the San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay Area. The railroads may or may not be working, so you're not going to be able to use the rails to get stuff in and out. And the airports, to get people in and out, they may or may not be working because the San, uh, San Francisco airport is on reclaimed land. And I wonder if that might compromise the the runways after an earthquake so they would use los angeles as a fly-in area and then bus people up to put all that in together is going to take more than just a couple of days so yeah to be prepared to be on your own for five to ten days that makes a lot of sense one of the chapters here to change the subject a little bit talks about the destruction of great stanford university and let me just read this. It says, in a, in a way, the real founder of the university was a young boy, Leland Stanford Jr. On his deathbed, he was asked by his parents what he would like them to do with the vast fortune which he would have had had he lived. He replied he would like them to found a great university where young men and women without means can get an education. For, he added, that it is I intended all along to do before I knew I was going to die. So they carried out his dying wish, and they endowed Stanford University. I know that Mrs. Stanford, when she was a widow, she gave $30,000 outright and bonds. And Leland Stanford, the father, had an, made an endowment of $34 million, besides the original 30000 And Stanford University was designed for people to go free and get a college education. And they carried out his dying wish. And the first name of the school was the Leland Stanford University for both sexes. So male and female students could go there and get a free uh, higher education. Wow. And now it's one of world-class university. It is. Uh, but it was, it was almost completely destroyed mm. in the earthquake. So the entire area, there was a lot of destruction. But the big, the big thing that killed people in San Francisco was the fire. Because you couldn't get it out and you couldn't get people out of the debris fast enough because that fire came right up, bam, as soon as the earthquake was over and the market district was on fire, the whole area. That's like the wildfires that we were seeing up in um, Lake County and how fast they were moving from one community mm-hmm. to another. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that it was... 
I know that the one in, in Butte County, it went from Paradise, which was completely destroyed. There wasn't anything but a, but a few chimneys standing there. Uh, Megalia, and then I think parts of um, Oroville were damaged. But anyway, so that's pretty much what I know. And, and it's, like I said, sourced mostly from this book, which to me is an amazing piece of history to have these firsthand accounts and and anecdotes about what happened during this earthquake. It, it becomes a historical, it goes from being a historical earthquake to a real event that happened with real people and had consequences. And to me, that's, I find that extremely interesting. Yeah. How people reacted and, and they reacted pretty much the way they react now, except that now we're better trained and we know more. Well, good. That's a good note to end on. Mm-hmm. Well, let me know when we do another one. Give me a couple of months though. I got to move. Oh, sure. I know. Well, uh, well we can do I get, it. Once I move, I'll we be We could do it on my birthday. It's March. Okay. <laughs> March what? March 11. Done. Yeah, and, and we can talk about Santa Rosa, or we can pick something out. I'm doing a workshop next week called Grok, and it's about feelings. And feelings and values. So we'll see how that works. See how that works. Yeah, did you ever read those Lazarus Long books? His values were interesting, Heinlein's values. Mm-mm. Tell me that again. Robert Heinlein uh, is the author that came up with that term. Oh, yeah. He did. A, he did. He wrote a lot. He was didn't write as much as Asimov, but he wrote a lot of books. He wrote a bunch of them when he had a brain tumor too. But he had he he had attitudes about the future and how they would treat nudity and how they would treat sex and how they would treat survival and and things like that. And some of his later books. I'm trying to remember the name of the one. Stranger in a Strange Land. I think is the one that Grok came from. Mm-hmm. I was looking for that in the bookstore a couple of months ago. I'll go back again and see if they've got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you're going to do Grok, that's where it comes from. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, thank you, Kay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good to see you again. Same here. We have to do this every couple of months then. All right. <laughs> At least. <laughs> you're on. I'll do it again for sure when I get once I get moved and settled in. When you're planning for a disaster, you need to have an outside of area contact so that if you're separated or evacuated separately, like you have to leave work and your children are taken from the school, that you all have a phone number that you can call outside of the area and that person can keep a list of who has called them so that when the parent calls and says, are my kids okay? Yeah, they're here. They called me and said they were sent here. Or have you heard from my wife? Yes, she said she had to go to this place or she was wherever. But it's better because local communications will be down. Local phone lines will be down. Local cell towers will be down. But if you can get a line out of the area and have a designated contact person, you'll be, first of all, it'll be much It'll make you feel better to know to know that there's somebody to call. And also, it will help you reorganize your family if you get separated. Good. They have a plan so in place. It. There, mm-hmm. you just did the commercial. Good. 
<laughs> I'll have to do it again. 